Hey, it's Matt. Before we get started, I want to tell you about Friday's show. We caught up on Indiana's biggest headlines from last week and heard from a researcher at Notre Dame who conducted a study that showed a correlation between political polarization and compliance with COVID-19 safety guidelines. You can find that in our podcast feed wherever you get podcasts and be sure to subscribe so you always know what we're talking about. Today, we have an encore of a live show we did just a couple of weeks ago. So we can't take your questions or comments via voicemail or social media, but we still welcome your thoughts. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter at All In Indiana. Let us know if you like shows like this that have nothing to do with the pandemic. And if you have suggestions for other shows like it, feel free to share them with us. And if you do have questions about today's topic, native and invasive plants, I would encourage you to look up the Indiana Native Plant Society's Facebook page, where their members are always responsive and engaging. If you need help identifying plants or if you're looking for ideas on what to put into your garden or landscaping, they're happy to help. This is All In. I'm Matt Pelser. We're doing everything we can to avoid talking about the pandemic today, though it is a factor in everything. That said, it's springtime, time to think about gardening and landscaping. Some stores with greenhouses and nurseries are open right now, and if you're thinking about getting outside and getting your hands in the dirt, I have three guests on the phone today you might want to listen to. Today we're going to share some general information about native plants and invasive plants, and we'll also share some tips on using native plants in your home garden, as well as what plants to avoid and why. Joining me for today's conversation is the president of of the Indiana Native Plant Society, Ellen Jacart. Hi, Ellen. Hi, Matt. We also have a landscape architect who specializes in using native plants. He works for Mark M. Holman Incorporated in Indianapolis, David Gordon. Good afternoon. Hello, Matt. And the owner of Laura Stein Gardens in Fort Wayne, Laura Stein. Welcome. Hi, Matt. So, Ellen, I'm going to start with you. What is the Indiana Native Plant Society? Well, Matt, it is a nonprofit uh, society that is dedicated to promoting native plants, their appreciation, uh, preserving native plants, studying them, and using plants uh, that are native to Indiana. And we do that through a number of ways. We have a conference every year, a native plant sale, um, and just uh, try to reach out to the public and let them learn about native plants and get excited about native plants like we do. And you also have a really vibrant uh, social media as well. I, I am, uh, uh, I guess, following the Indiana Native Plant Society on Facebook, and there are a number of people, especially this time of year, no shortage of people who are asking for plant identifications and things like that, mostly to identify invasive species, I've found. Uh, and everyone who is a moderator on there or everyone who's participating is always very, very quick to help out. Is that pretty common in the native plant world? I think so. And I think we were um, an early adopter of using Facebook to get people together to, to talk about native plants. And so as of, I think, last week, we were over 15,000 people in our Facebook group. Now, our, our paid uh, membership is really only about 1,000 people, but we found that uh, there's just sort of a natural home uh in the Indiana Native Plant Society's Facebook group for everybody to come and ask about what is this thing in my backyard? And sometimes it turns out it's a great native plant. Sometimes it turns out it's an invasive plant. And we can tell people what to do about what they found, how to grow it, or how to kill it. 
What are some I, I, some of the most common questions that you get? Uh, like, what <laughs> are there plants that just look strange and people are like, what is this thing? And you see them all the time? Oh, absolutely. Um, one of the probably the most common question we get is a person posting a picture of a shrub in their backyard in, in March, in early March, when nothing else is turning green, they've got this shrub and it's, and it's turning green. It's putting out leaves really early. And it almost always turns out that that is Asian bush honeysuckle, one of our worst invasive plants that greens up easily a month before our native shrubs do. So people notice it because it looks different, want to know what is it, and then we have to tell them that is an invasive shrub. So what would they do about that if they saw something like that? Well, we give them uh, advice and guidance in terms of um, Asian bush honeysuckle is an example of a very shallow-rooted shrub. So if they're not too large, you can actually pull them out of the ground. Uh, In some places, we actually have uh, counties that have for loan weed wrenches that are tools that will attach to the base of a shrub and you pull down the lever and it'll pull it out of the soil. And so that's another way that people can uh, get rid of Asian bush honeysuckle. And we also talked about you can cut them off and you can uh, paint the stump with a herbicide to keep it from re-sprouting if you don't want to try and get all the roots out of the ground. Mm. David, you work for Mark M. Holman Incorporated, which is a landscape firm that's been in business here in Indianapolis for decades. Have you and your team found that there is growing interest in using native plants in gardens and landscapes? We have more and more as I meet, and most of the vast majority of the work we do is residential. And so more and more I'm getting homeowners asking specifically for us to create a landscape or to revise their existing landscape using primarily native plants. Um, Occasionally we have purists who they want a solely native landscape but more often than not they say we'd really like to have a you know i've been reading that's what they'll say i've been reading or i've seen because of organizations like the indiana native plant society who's been who've been promoting native plants as you've heard they've learned they've been educated and they've said you know i've heard that this is a good thing to do to attract pollinators and so on and so forth to attract birds to attract butterflies and i'd like to incorporate more native plants into my landscape so yes we're hearing it more and more So for the people who say, I want an entirely native landscape, uh, is that challenging in any way? I mean, obviously, you've got to be selective about what you about what you choose. But are they hard to come by? Are they difficult to maintain when you do that? Uh, Or are there so many options that you can really pick one that uh, you could choose one that would be particularly difficult to maintain or you could choose one that would be practically zero maintenance? Well, maintenance is always a concern, but. The biggest obstacle we have sometimes is that people have a mistaken notion that to have a native landscape requires having something that's going to look kind of wild. And yes, some native landscapes, a natural prairie, for example, can look kind of wild as it's a a mix of of different grasses and forbs and a variety of things, um, sometimes growing in what looks like a rather haphazard way. But and people look at that and they go, well, I don't want that in my front yard. I want a native plant. I want a native planting, but I don't want something that looks too wild. And so what we try to instill in people is the notion that you can plant native plants in any way that you want to. You can have a formal garden and of all native plants. Um, yes, it maybe is not rec- recreating a habitat or a, 
uh, an ecosystem that might be found in nature, but it's still utilizing the native plants that is attractive to insects, attractive to birds, and so on. And so if we can get past that notion that it doesn't have to look messy, then, then we're on the right path. And um, if we can do it in a way that uh, is low in maintenance, and there are, there are methods of doing that, that, all the better. So basically what you're saying is a native plant garden or landscape installation can look just as uh, formal and ornamental as, say, any garden that you would have otherwise perhaps more control over. Yes, it can. It's just a matter of using the right plants in the right place, like all landscape design is. But those plants you're selecting are native. Laura, correct me if I'm wrong. I would imagine what you do is pretty similar to what David and his team do, only you do it in the greater Fort Wayne area. Your company is committed to not using invasive plants in your landscape. And while you very much prefer to use native plants, you'll sometimes use non-natives or cultivars. Can you explain the difference between natives and non-natives and why one might be, I don't know, better than the other in some ways? Sure. Our company is very much uh, like David's company and in that we work with uh, the majority of residential homeowners as our clients. So native plants, uh, typically native plants are ones that um, we consider were here before European settlement. So they have over millions of years um, lived with uh, our native insects and native birds to um, you know, to coexist, and the those insects have used the plants um, as host plants to um, to grow and to um, have their young on, and as as part of the ecosystem. So, a non-native plant is traditionally um, ones that we have over the past hundred years had in our landscapes because they were chosen because they were new and they were different. Things like peonies and lilacs. And um, if you think back to what your grandmother had in her garden, most of those were non-native plants because they were, um, they were the pretty new thing, something different. Um, so the only trouble with having those in our gardens or having our gardens made up of only those plants is that our native insects, our pollinators, and all of the wildlife that is based on our environment can't use those because they did not evolve together. Um, so that's why native plants are so very important to have in our in our home gardens. Ellen, are there examples, though, of non-natives or cultivars that uh, our local native pollinators uh, use just fine and, you know, have no problem with? Well, there are um, certainly non-native plants that are out there, and you will see uh, bees pollinating them. But what we talk about with people is that um, and another important part of providing for pollinators is providing for um, the larval stage caterpillars. And most caterpillars are uh, tightly tied to particular native plants uh, that they evolved with. And so while you may get bees coming into a lilac that's non-native, 
you're really not going to see any of our native butterflies benefiting by being able to raise their larvae on those non-natives. That's where the native plants really shine, that if you want to provide for all the life stages of the insects, and most of us do because insects then are the food that uh, parents of the bird parents use to raise their young. Um, you really need to start with native plants to provide for the whole food web. We are talking about native and invasive plants in gardening today here on All In. We are with the president of the Indiana Native Plant Society, Ellen Jaycart. David Gordon is with us. He's a landscape architect with Mark M. Holman Incorporated. And Laura Stein is also on the panel today. She's the owner of Laura Stein Gardens in Fort Wayne. We've already got some great questions coming in. Keep them coming on uh, Facebook and Twitter at All In Indiana. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 866-476-3881. We'll be back with our panel in just under two minutes. This is All In. Hi, it's Matt. Before we get back to today's encore of a show we did a couple of weeks ago on native and invasive plants, I want to tell you what we have planned for next time. Pandemics are nothing new, so we're exploring the history of pandemics with a professor of history from IU who has specialized in studying the many, many times humanity has been disrupted by plagues and diseases. That's tomorrow. Let's get back now to our repeat broadcast on spring gardening. And because this is a repeat, we can't take your questions or comments for our panel, but we still welcome your comments on social media. We're on Twitter and Facebook at All in Indiana. And remember, if you have a question about native and invasive plants that wasn't addressed today on the show, you can find help at the Indiana Native Plant Society's Facebook page. This is All In. I'm Matt Pelser. We're talking about native plants and using native plants in your spring garden planting. And we're also warning against invasive plants with a panel of experts. We have Ellen Jaycart from the Indiana Native Plant Society with us. She's the president of the Indiana Native Plant Society. David Gordon is with us as well. He's the land, he is a landscape architect with Mark M. Holman Incorporated in Indianapolis. And Laura Stein of Laura Stein Gardens in Fort Wayne is also on the panel today. All right. So we have a question from Emmanuel on Twitter who asks, any recommendations on woodland palette grasses for an area that receives morning sun and shade the remaining uh, the remainder of the day? Uh, anybody want to take that one? I don't even know if I know what woodland palette grasses are. <laughs> that doesn't ring a woodland palette grasses doesn't ring a bell for me, but I know um, sedges that would mimic the look of a grass are, um, and there's lots and lots of uh, sedges available. Um, something like Pennsylvania sedge um, could could work in that in a setting like that. David, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, a sedge, a sedge for those who don't know, is a grass-like plant. It's very you would look at it and think it's a grass. Technically, it's not, but but yeah, the sedges would be great. One I like. The scientific name for sedge is Carex, and there's one called Carex radiata, which I really like. It's kind of a ground cover. Um, I think you said it gets a half-day sun. Is that what the question was, Matt? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, let's see. It says uh, morning sun and shade for the remainder of the day. That's the problem with a lot of grasses is they're more sun-tolerant um, and don't necessarily do great in the shade. I'll tell, one, I'll tell you one native plant that I, that I really, really like with reservation. And that is called northern sea oats. Casmanthium is the scientific name. And it's got a wonderful little seed head. And it's, it's 
it's interesting because it tolerates shade like most grasses don't. And it's a good native grass. Its problem is if it's in a place where you don't want it to reseed, it could be a problem because it will take, it will reseed itself all through a garden. So in a more woodland area where you don't really quite care if something wants to reseed itself and spread a little bit, that would be a great, a great grass. And if I could toss one in, my favorite um, grass in a, in a woodland setting that's at least half shade is bottle brush grass. It's a native grass where the fruits stick out and it looks like a bottle brush. It's kind of dramatic uh, when it's in flower and fruit. And uh, so that's, that's one I would recommend for a somewhat shady spot. I think they used to call those ticklers when I was growing up. <laughs> Is that what I'm thinking of? <laughs> it might be. That might be. Uh, there's a non-native grass called foxtail that's a very fuzzy kind of uh, grass, and um, that that that's also one that has that same similar look that the fruits stick out. But I think bottle brush is a lot more dramatic. It's bigger. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Chad from Elkhart has a question about one species in particular, and we were going to get to this today, and I'm glad that a listener brought it up, the Bradford pear or the calorie pear. He says, I, I've heard invasive, and I've also heard that it's not invasive. Please set the record on this. Ellen, what about the Bradford pear? <laughs> I can... All right. This this is a topic I've, I've talked a lot about because um, in the last oh, 10, 20 years, uh, Bradford pears have exploded as an invasive plant in Indiana. So let me start by saying what the species actually is. The species is called calorie pear because Mr. Calorie, a botanist, uh, brought it over and started um, producing it for uh, use in horticulture. And the first cultivar of it was Bradford pear. But because Bradford pear um, had a very weak branching architecture, they are known for Splitting. If the wind comes, the whole tree will fall apart. The big branches fall down. They developed other cultivars, and it turned out, you know, the cultivars had better branch architecture. Some had better color in the fall. Some had different shapes. And it turned out that these different cultivars would would um, reproduce if you put them next to each other. So instead of being a sterile tree, which is how Bradford pear was sold, because it could not self-pollinate because it could not produce fruits by itself. Um, Once they started putting different cultivars next to each other, different genetic individuals, they could reproduce. And what has resulted in the last decade has been thousands and thousands of uh, fruits being produced that are then spread by starlings because this is the favorite food of starlings. And those seeds that are then deposited to uh, grow into uh, small calorie pears. Now, some people may say, well, this uh, cultivar is not invasive versus that cultivar is. That is not the case. All of the cultivars, if they are put in proximity to uh, another cultivar, will produce huge numbers of fruits and will become invasive. We have one federal property in southern Indiana at this point that already has over 8,000 acres of forest where calorie pear has come into the understory and dominates the understory, really keeping our native hardwood trees from regenerating in those forests. So it's, it's become just a hugely problematic plant. So what can be done about that? I mean, I, I, I've wondered this myself because I've not personally seen... 
uh, I guess, wild calorie pear in a forest or anything like that. But then again, I don't always know what to look for. I mean, I really only know what calorie pear looks like in the springtime right now when it's blossoming. What can we right. do about that? Is there anything being done about that said federal property where calorie pears are taking over? Well, right now that federal property is spending over $100,000 a year to control the calorie pear. Um, they're going in, they're mowing it, they're, they are using herbicide to spray re-sprouts in a, in a desperate attempt, really, to allow our native hardwoods like white oaks and uh, elms to actually be able to reproduce and create a new forest stand. So it does take a lot of work, um, and that's a lot of money, in, in other words, to control it and uh, allow the native plants to uh, survive. David, calorie pears are all over my neighborhood. I, I, I'm guessing that the, the, the people who put together the, the, the subdivision where I live decided, well, this is a tree that grows fast and it looks pretty in the spring, uh, like a lot of people who have planted them. I, I'm guessing that's what they did. What is it about calorie pears that makes them so desirable to landscapers and, uh, and developers? Well, we should say what made them desirable, because hopefully... Um, they're not desirable anymore, but what made them desirable was the the white flower in the spring, which we're seeing right now. And it also has a, a nice fall color. They have a tidy shape and to me, almost too tidy of a shape. I can, I refer to it as a lollipop with no character at all. And I think what has happened through time, people have planted them in their front yard and wish they hadn't for one reason that they had just become so big and thick and bushy that they block out their front the front of their house and uh, so anyway that's what made them so attractive was their their, their flower uh, they were and they're pretty tough plants too they will grow in tough tough environments along streets um, and that's what made them so desirable and um, you know they're in your neighborhood just just this morning I was driving across 86th Street in Indianapolis past St. Vincent Hospital where the entire parking lot is just filled with Bradford pears and you stated that you maybe hadn't seen them outside of your neighborhood, but if, if you drive along almost any, uh, if you drive around 465 around Indianapolis, you'll see them in flower right now. In any kind of disturbed areas, um, the intersection of 86th Street and Keystone, the, that whole intersection is filled with pears and bloom right now. And some people might say, well, you know, they're, they're kind of pretty. Why not just leave them? And I think Ellen did a good job of describing how they do then choke out all of the good native trees, the oaks and whatever that are that are trying to are trying to come up. And I'll admit that in in years past, I've I've planted Bradford and other kinds of pears on projects I've been involved with. But I've learned as as it became a problem because it wasn't always a problem. I think 20 years ago, 20 years ago, you would not we didn't see this problem. It's something that's been fairly recent. Um, but I still get clients who say, well, maybe a Bradford pear would be a good plant to plant here. And then it's my turn to my time to put on an educator's hat and, and try to explain, no, this is, these are the reasons why we don't want to plant a Bradford pear here. We're on the phone with David Gordon. He's a landscape architect with Mark M. Holman Incorporated in Indianapolis. We're also with Laura Stein of Lawrence, Laura Stein Gardens in Fort Wayne. And Ellen Jaycart is the president of the Indiana Native Plant Society. We're talking about gardening, spring gardening, and also using native plants and avoiding invasive plants. Uh, let's see. We have a question Matt? from Rick. Oh, sure. Go ahead. I just wanted to add a little something about the calorie pair. And that is that it's 
really important for homeowners and gardeners to know that you can still go to almost any retail nursery and still purchase a calorie pear. They are, it is still legal to buy them. And so it's really important that we understand how invasive they are so that we can let our friends and let our families know so that they don't go into a nursery and buy one and bring it home, especially now because they're blooming. Um, so if you weren't, if you didn't know that they were invasive, you could go buy one and bring it in, bring it to your home. And Laura, I'm glad that you brought that up because that that segues perfectly into a question that I have for Ellen. So the timing, Ellen, of this show is serendipitous because there's a new rule going into effect this Saturday from the Indiana Department of Natural Resources, the terrestrial plant rule. What is that? The terrestrial plant rule is the culmination of uh, many years' work, um, and uh, great thanks are owed to the Department of Natural Resources and specifically the Division of Entomology and Plant Pathology, which has jurisdiction over invasive plants in Indiana. This rule uh, declares that 44 species of invasive plants may not be bought, sold, exchanged, planted, traded, transported. Um, basically, the only thing you can do with it is, you know, leave it if it's in place on your property or, or control it, which is what we would recommend, killing uh, any of those 44 species. Um, so that does take effect on Saturday, meaning that as of that day, it will be illegal to sell such species as purple winter creeper, Japanese barberry, Asian bittersweet, autumn olive, crown vetch, Japanese honeysuckle, and, and several other plants. But as I understand it, speaking of the calorie pear, it is exempt from this rule. Why? Mm, yeah, well, that goes back... We, uh, I worked with a group, the Invasive Plant Advisory Committee, which is a working group of the Indiana Invasive Species Council, to do assessments on every one of uh, about 70 species. And we ranked those as to how highly invasive they were. And out of those 70, there were 46 that ranked as highly invasive. And then several years back, um, the Department of Natural Resources drafted a rule that would make it illegal to sell or exchange these uh, 46 species. But fairly quickly, uh, in talking with commercial growers in the state, they found that uh, there was enough value uh, in the ground in, these, in two of the 46 species such that they were removed from the rule. And those two species were calorie pear, and Norway maple. So those did not go forward with the rule because it was felt that the economic impact to the commercial growers of those species would be too great. And I guess, how do you feel about that exception? I mean, on, on the one hand, uh, the, you know, the invasive plant issue, and on the other hand, really the economy. Um, I don't know. What do you feel about that compromise? Well, I, you know, I absolutely understand why the Department of Natural Resources felt they needed to do that. Um, I, I am delighted that we were able to go through, go forward with the 44. But, you know, if you remember just a few minutes ago, we were talking, I was saying we've got one federal property that's spending over $100,000 every year to try and beat back the calorie pair. We've got the Department of Transportation, who is now having to control major infestations of calorie pair along our major highways. We are incurring real costs um, mm -hmm. in having to clean up after this plant, 
And those costs are being spread out, essentially. We're, we're inheriting those through our tax dollars. And it, it doesn't seem like a, a good, uh, balanced way of figuring out the economics of this when there are a few commercial growers who stand to make a profit of it, but the rest of society is picking up the cost of, of having to clean up after this species. I feel like somehow this, this analysis doesn't seem to be weighted um, appropriately. We have another question on Facebook. This one is from Rick, who sounds like he's up in northwest Indiana. He asks, can you recommend a native species ground cover for a north-facing hillside, a very uh, very dry, a dune about a half a mile from Lake Michigan with partial sun? <laughs> Anybody? Laura, perhaps? It's a tough, so tough it's, environment. Yeah, it is a tough environment. So if um, if it's sandy, it's... It's north-facing, so it's going to get quite a bit of shade. Um, something like, there's a ground cover. It's our native sedum ground cover, sedum ternatum, um, and it does well in shade. Um, that could be one that would work. Um, if it gets even a half-day sun, I know the, um, it's not really a ground cover, but it, it could, um, it's a low-growing perennial, the butterfly, orange butterfly milkweed could uh, work if it's getting um, at least maybe a half day sun. And we have a listener voicemail from Joe about what plants would be best to plant in his front yard, a spot that doesn't receive a lot of sunlight. Let's listen to Joe. This is Joe from Indiana. My house, uh, the front of it faces the north, so it doesn't receive a lot of sunlight. What plants can I plant in the front uh, that will still look good for the spring and summer uh, without just dying, without receiving sunlight. So Joe's house faces north and it doesn't receive a lot of sunlight. What plants can he get out there that will still do well and look good out front? David? Yeah, a couple of possibilities. I'm a big fan of ferns. And there are some good native ferns, Christmas fern, for example, or ostrich fern, um, assuming it, it can get appropriate moisture. Um, those are some possibilities. Um, our native um, native hydrangea um, is a good thing that tolerates, that grows naturally in the woods. Um, it's hydrangea arborescence is, is also a good possibility for north-facing, somewhat shady area. And, uh, Laura, let's talk about the native hydrangea versus hydrangea arborescence. Are we talking about the same thing, or is one a cultivar? Hydrangea arborescence is our native hydrangea. And then Annabelle hydrangea is a cultivated variety of hydrangea arborescence. Okay. So most people are probably very familiar with the Annabelle hydrangea. It gets the large softball size white blooms. And in the last probably five to seven years, it's become very popular. Laura, so let's, let's hold that thought for a moment. We have to take a break. We'll come back and we'll talk more. Laura Stein is the owner of Laura Stein Gardens in Fort Wayne. We also have David Gordon on the line. He is a landscape architect with Mark M. Holman Incorporated. And Ellen J. Cart is the president of the Indiana Native Plant Society. We'll be back in 90 seconds. This is all in. Hey, it's Matt. A reminder before we return to today's show that this is an encore from a couple of weeks ago, so we can't get your questions or comments to our panel, but we hope you're enjoying the show. Let's get back to it. 
This is All In. I'm Matt Pelser. We're talking about using native plants uh, versus invasive plants in our spring gardens. And we are on the line with a panel of experts for today, uh, including Ellen Jaycart, the president of the Indiana Native Plant Society, David Gordon, a landscape architect for Mark M. Holman Incorporated in Indianapolis, and Laura Stein, the president or the owner of Laura Stein Gardens in Fort Wayne. And Laura, it's live radio. I'm so sorry about the interruption. I interrupted you before we took a break. And you were talking about the difference between native hydrangea and the cultivar um, that we can sometimes find in, in uh, local gardens. Yeah, Annabelle is a really popular cultivar of hydrangea arborescence. And it's a really stark example of the straight species versus a cultivated variety. Now, they're not all this stark, but if I have planted them um, close together at my house to really kind of illustrate the difference. And um, I'm going to, I can put a video up of the pollinator activity on my uh, Facebook page so people can take a look at it. But what you get with the, um, the bloom of the native, the hydrangea arborescence or the straight species is loads of pollinator activity on that when you get the bloom. And it does bloom for a nice long time, which is what we love about hydrangeas, right? During the summer, they just, they bloom and bloom. So the bloom period is probably six to eight weeks at least. And the Annabelle does the same thing, but those blooms are, they're round and they're just aren't the, the way the blooms are formed there's not nearly the amount of pollen. And so you rarely see any kind of uh, pollinator, native bee or uh, butterfly activity on those. So it's really interesting. And, and Matt, that, that brings up an interesting point, the whole discussion of nativars, as it's called, cultivars of native plants. And um, Laura gave a good example of one where the cultivar just doesn't attract the same pollinators. And, and the, the research that I've done or research that I've read about that has been done has really shown a variety of, of things. Um, and someone could pose the question, well, does this cultivar, is it a good alternative to the straight species or not? in terms of attracting attracting pollinators and attracting wildlife and the answer i've come up with is it depends um cultivars are created for a number of reasons to change the, the appearance maybe to make something more disease resistant maybe to make something more compact stalk steady a sturdier uh, maybe a different flower color maybe a bigger flower like the case of the annabelle hydrangea maybe a smaller flower maybe a different color flower maybe a different color foliage a variety of reasons to that cultivars have been created and that's what i've uncovered that it just kind of depends one thing that is a certainty that I've uncovered is that anything that changes the leaf color of a plant, say obviously a plant that's normally green, has a cultivar now that has purple leaves or yellow leaves or variegated leaves, that is always something that's going to attract fewer insects. Um, and when it comes to the flower type, the example Laura gave of a, of a larger flower is typically the case that it's going to attract fewer fewer pollinators. Um, there are some instances where they attract more. Maybe the flowers have gotten smaller and more easily easily approached by um, insects or, in some cases, bigger and a better situation for hummingbirds. So it really depends. And, and um, I'd be interested if Ellen has any thoughts about this, but uh, um, 
I'd say many, many native plants are being sold in a cultivar form for one reason, and that is because they, they, they offer more to the garden from an appearance point of view. They're, they're, they're sturdier. They have some attribute that makes them more attractive. Go ahead, Ellen. I, I agree with you, David. I, I mean, the in, it depends, I think, is absolutely accurate. And I know that's kind of frustrating because it would be so much easier if there was a black and white answer. There is a lot of research going on now. And I think uh, David has pointed out some of the things that they have determined, like changing of the leaf color makes it less uh, attractive to pollinators. I think it's going to be another few years before we have a, a, a good list of, okay, for this species, this cultivar is going, to pro, is going to attract fewer pollinators. This cultivar may attract more pollinators because that can also happen. Mm-hmm. So in time, I think we'll know more. But um, right now, we don't have a, a black and white answer for are they're, they're not necessarily always better or always worse. It's, you have to kind of look into the specifics of that, of that species and cultivar. We are getting so many great questions from Facebook and Twitter. Barbara asks, how about a recommendation on native plants I can plant to replace knockout roses that look terrible post the uh, 2018 winter? They're on the east side of the house. Laura, any recommendations for Barbara? Well, again, not to keep repeating myself, but I really love that native hydrangea for lots of bloom. And that's probably why she planted the rose. Um, so hydrangea arborescence. Now, if for something that is very uh, decorative, uh, visually appealing, but in a different season, there's a dwarf winterberry. Our native holly is um, is what we call winterberry, and there is the um, the straight species is about five to seven feet tall, but there's also a lovely dwarf species that would be about the same size as her. Um, roses. And from October to February, those are going to be loaded with red berries. And on mine, every March, I get blueberry or bluebirds that come and eat those berries. So Mm. it's like a another visual treat there Um, at the end of winter, right when I'm ready for some nice color, I get bluebirds on my uh, winter berries. So that could be an option. And Laura, is that the cultivar red sprite? That is one of, yeah, sprite, the sprites are one of the uh, cultivars and they're making uh, new ones all the time. In fact, there's a there's one I think it's called um, Little Goblin that has orange berries. So getting into you know I'm not sure that anyone's done the research on that. Do the birds like those as well? I'm not sure. So that's one of the challenges with cultivars is that there are new ones coming out all the time and the research lags. Right. So you know it just takes time to do the research. So it, it's hard to know if you're if it's really important to you then do the research and you can find out before you go to the nursery. David, I have a question for you from Kara on Twitter. She asks, if we want to go all in, thanks, Kara, all in on uh, native and low-maintenance yard this quarantine summer, where do we start? Any DIY resources? I guess perhaps what Kara is asking is um, what would be some good low-maintenance options for, I guess, both grasses and also simple landscaping? Well, the, the low maintenance is a challenging thing because the plants themselves are really all low maintenance. It's what the main, the biggest maintenance that people have is weeds, and that doesn't matter what you, doesn't matter what you plant. Obviously, some things are maybe denser and fuller and 
and do a better job of kind of choking out weeds. But the biggest maintenance people have is weeds. Um, it's not pruning, although some people give themselves more maintenance than they need by feeling a desire to shear all their plants into balls instead of letting them grow somewhat naturally. And they have a tendency to want to spread mulch everywhere, which they don't need to do. Um, so some people bring on their own maintenance, heavy maintenance, more than they need. So to get started, I would, I would talk to a professional who could assist them and put together a plan of some kind that could be carried out in phases over a period of time. Um, somebody who could offer suggestions as to the types of plants that, that could fit in well to a site and um, based on the setting, sun, shade, the soil conditions and all that kind of stuff um, and picking the right kind of plants. And if you don't mind me kind of, kind of segueing into a kind of a side topic and one issue is how pure of a native landscape you'd want. There are a lot of plants that I would call native-ish, meaning that maybe technically they're not native to Indiana, meaning they're not growing naturally in Indiana, but they are nearby, like Tennessee, the Southeast, Virginia, the Appalachians. And that, those are some of my favorite plants, things like oak leaf hydrangea, bottle brush buckeye, um, Virginia sweet spire, um, things like that that are wonderful landscape plants. And I tend to push the boundary a little bit and say, well, this is almost a native plant and we'll incorporate them in my landscapes because it gives you so many more opportunities and so many uh, beautiful options to include. We're talking about gardening with native plants and avoiding invasive plants, and we're also talking a little bit about non-natives as well. We're on the phone with David Gordon. He is a landscape architect for Mark M. Holman Incorporated here in Indianapolis. Ellen Jaycart is the president of the Indiana Native Plant Society, and Laura Stein is the owner of Laura Stein Gardens in Fort Wayne. They're all part of our panel today. Laura, I want to follow up on uh, part of Kara's question. Are there any DIY resources out there? Are there any perhaps books? Books um, uh, or, or websites where Kara could find a way to do some of this herself. Absolutely, and um, the Indiana Native Plant Society has a great website, and um, on there is a this lovely landscaping tab. She can go right to that, and there is there are wonderful lists of plants. Some at the woods edge. There's perennials. They're broken up kind of by trees and shrubs and perennials. There's woodland, there's sun, um, and there's water's edge, so ones that are uh, for a little uh, wetter soil. And then you can also connect with um, the growindiananatives.org. I'll say it again, growindiananatives.org. And that has um, retailers around the state who are carrying native plants, so she could know where to go to get them. And then there's also a list on there of designers who are designing with native plants. So if she likes to do her own research, those are a couple really good uh, places to go. Emlyn on Twitter writes, I'm planning to convert a lawn embankment into a native landscape, but have been furloughed due to COVID-19. So hard, sorry to hear that, Emlyn. Are there any free or low cost resources other than wild harvesting for obtaining plants? Ellen, do you know anything uh, that Emlyn could do? Well, um, I would say that uh, usually at this time of year, the Indiana Native Plant Society is getting ready for one of our big events of the year, the plant sale, which this 
and, and usually the plants available are at a very reasonable cost. Um, however, because of COVID-19, we have canceled that this year. Um, and, and of course, with COVID-19, many uh, local events uh, are also being delayed. But keep your eyes open for plant swaps um, or local plant sales. Um, I know that a number of the chapters of the Indiana Native Plant Society, like uh, the Northeast chapter of the Indiana Native Plant Society, where uh, Laura Stein is located, uh, has, have done uh, native plant sales um, sometimes in the fall of the year. Uh, but often there will be people doing plant swaps and so that if you have something that you can share, you can pick up something different. I will just raise a huge caution on that. If you think about what people bring to plant swaps, it's usually what they have a lot of, and that means taking over their yard. <laughs> that means it's an invasive plant. So be absolutely sure you know what you're getting before you take something at a plant swap. Okay, we have another listener voicemail. This one is from Brad in Shelby County. He has a plant that he's trying to get rid of. Let's listen. Brad Goodwin, Shelby County. How in the world do you get rid of and kill winter creeper? Thank you. <laughs> winter creeper. Brad wants to know how to get rid of winter creeper. Does anybody have a suggestion? Ellen? This, yeah, this is one I've dealt with a fair amount, and I, I, you have my empathy. This is a tough one to deal with. A winter, purple winter creeper, which will be illegal to buy, sell, or plant as of April 18th. Um, and because it is so highly invasive, it's an evergreen ground cover that also grows up trees and can just smother out all of the, the plant life in, in a forest. Um, you've got several options. Um, if you don't want to use chemicals, the, the best option is uh, simply pull it. You start pulling and you keep pulling till it's gone. There will still be re-sprouts and then you go back and you pull those again and bundle all of those vines up and make sure that they can't make contact with the ground and, and re-sprout. A second way that people will do it, if it's a relatively small area, is to smother it. That is, you'd get some big pieces of cardboard, um, find a place that recycles cardboard, get big pieces, layer those on the ground, put 6 to 12 inches of wood chip mulch on top of it to hold down the cardboard, and give it a year. And in that time, it will kill the winter creeper under the, the cardboard, and the cardboard will start to dissolve. And after a year, you simply dig a hole into that mulch, and you plant whatever you want in, in your new area. Otherwise, uh, people will often use uh, chemicals to control uh, winter creeper by spraying it, often in the fall when there are no native plants above ground, and you're able to spray and kill the winter creeper without killing uh, native plants. Um, there's a lot of good information on um, websites out there about specific uh, control methods to use on winter creeper. Ellen, I, I, oh, I go ahead. Crew, I have a crew out today doing that very thing, and they're doing the manual effort that, that Ellen described, just pulling it, and we know for a fact that we think we've got it all, but there'll still be some root remnants left behind and some will pop back up again because it's tenacious. But I think fortunately it is shallow enough rooted that it can be with a little bit of, a little bit of effort can be pulled out. 
We have another listener voicemail here from Bill in Indianapolis. Bill has a question about milkweed and attracting butterflies. Let's listen. How do you plant swamp milkweed um, or what species of milkweed would you plant to attract monarch butterflies but contain uh, the milkweed so it doesn't spread throughout the garden? Thanks. We have just about a minute uh, and some change to go. Bill wants to know which kind of milkweed is best to plant for attracting butterflies and also wants to know how he can make sure it doesn't take over his entire garden. Any suggestions? I definitely think it depends on the type of soil he has. If he's got a little bit of, uh, if the soil is a little wetter, the marsh milkweed is really a good one, um, Asclepius incarnata, uh, because it, it grows well. It only gets about four feet tall, and it doesn't really seed prolifically. The common milkweed is really easy to grow, and I personally love that one. But you have to give it some space, and it, you will get little sprouts around in other beds that you can easily pull. If he has really dry soil that drains very, very well, he can use the butterfly milkweed, which is Asclepius tuberosa. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's lots of there are. Those are three really good ones that are pretty easy to find. Laura Stein Stein is the owner of Laura Stein Gardens in Fort Wayne. Laura and everyone on our panel today, I want to thank you so much. David Gordon is a landscape architect for Mark M. Holman Incorporated. Ellen Jaycard is the president of the Indiana Native Plant Society. This has been so great. Thank you to the listeners who ask all the great questions. In the meantime, we're on Twitter and Facebook at All In Indiana. Thanks for listening. I'm Matt Pelser. This is All In. Thank you.